welcome to episode 12 of the Going for Broke Outdoors podcast, a podcast by an outdoorsman for other outdoorsmen. I'm your host, Jeremy Gillespie. In today's episode, we welcome Greg Litzinger, aka the bow hunting fiend. Greg hails from New Jersey and hunts some of the highest pressure ground to be found across the entire U.S. Greg's gained a well-earned reputation as a guy who consistently puts down mature deer despite the challenges present in his home state. In this episode, we are joined by guest co-host Tim Buno from episode 11. Greg, Tim, and I discuss tree stand safety, Greg's tree stand accident, summer scouting, the new Spartan Forge program, Greg's backpack hunts for mountain whitetails, morning hunts, which are Greg's bread and butter, and how Greg approaches continual improvement in his hunting endeavors. Quick reminder, I have a new hunting gear checklist article on my blog that contains a downloadable Excel file with about every item a guy could imagine he might need to plan an out-of-state hunting trip. The checklist contains a checkbox feature to let me know if I've packed an item or not. There's a separate column for selecting if an item is a pack item, and this is for items I carry in my hunting pack, or a base camp item, and this is for items that will remain in my vehicle, cabin, or other lodging site. The checklist has formulas built in to automatically total the weight for the pack item separate from the base camp items. This is an incredibly useful feature when trying to be mindful of gear weight on backpack hunts. The checklist also contains hyperlinks to some of my favorite pieces of gear. I'll go ahead and put a link to the article in the description. Before we get started with today's podcast, I want to let you guys know about an incredible opportunity. Lou at Stealth Outdoors has given away one of Dan Infault's new Beast Gear tree stands. The giveaway for the tree stand is currently running. All you need to do to enter is make a purchase from Stealth Outdoors anytime before August 17th, and you'll be entered for a chance to win. Visit www.stealthoutdoors.com to outfit your mobile hunting setup with some silencing gear and a chance to win a beast stand. Head on over to Stealth Outdoors' Facebook page for contest details. Today's podcast is brought to you by Backwoods Mobile Gear at www.backwoodsmobilegear.com. Backwoods Mobile Gear produces an array of products to completely customize your mobile hunting setup. Backwoods Mobile Gear's product line includes climbing aiders like their multi-step aider and their Versa aider. Climb higher using the same amount of climbing sticks with the climbing aiders at a fraction of the weight of an additional climbing stick. Backwoods Mobile Gear also offers a variety of Amsteel rope solutions from daisy chains for climbing sticks to Amsteel gear hangers. Replace those bulky straps and hunt-ruining metal cam buckles with buckleless and lightweight Amsteel products from Backwoods Mobile Gear. Check out Backwoods Mobile Gear at www.backwoodsmobilegear.com if you want your setup to be lighter, to take you higher, and to keep your gear tighter. And for those of you who plant food plots, the window to get your fall plantings in is rapidly closing. Head on over to Ideal Northern Edge Food Plot Mixes at www.idealnorthernedge.com. Ideal Northern Edge has carefully created a variety of seed mixes and mineral blends to cover all of your food plot planting needs. A bright color coating on the seeds provides a visual contrast against tilled soil and helps you ensure optimal seed distribution and coverage for your next food plot planting. Visit www.idealnorthernedge.com for more information and to place your order. Now, on to the podcast. Hey, Greg, welcome to the show. What's up, man? Hey, I'm a first-time caller, long-time listener, and... Yeah. <laughs> So we haven't actually met or talked before this podcast, but I've known of you for quite a while, so it's good to finally get you on the line. We were actually supposed to meet last year when you came out to Montana to hunt elk with our mutual friend, Tim mm-hmm. Bunau, but I got a little yeah. I got a little sidetracked last year and I wasn't able to join, so glad to have you on and uh, finally get to talk to you. Yeah, you're after what, deer, right? 
Yeah, I was. Uh, I, I got on a real big muley, like a 160 muley that I ended up uh, missing. That's an embarrassing story. And then I went yeah, back. The, aren't they all? Yeah, right. And then I went back the the following weekend. So I kind of got obsessed with that deer and skipped out on the elk early on there. Yeah, uh, it's weird. Like social media, how you meet people from walk you would never meet at any point in time in your life, and there's a a, a common bond through it all, which is great. For, for sure. So, Greg, I want to get started for my listeners who aren't already familiar with you. Just give them a brief bio, like where you're from, when you started hunting, when you shot your first deer, that kind of stuff. They've never heard of me? <laughs> Shocked. Uh, let's see. Lifelong resident of southern New Jersey, not to be mistaken with northern Jersey and or seashore town. Born and raised small town. My dad was a hiker, hunter, fisherman, outdoorsman. So naturally it's just followed suit. Uh, loved fishing as a kid and always wanted to be a professional fisherman until I killed my first deer with a bow. And I'm like, hunting is way cooler. And I've been obsessed with chasing deer with my bow now for the 30 years this year. So I've been bow hunting public land for 30 years. Nice. And uh, what are you mid forties these days? Yeah, I'll be 40, 44 this year. That's depressing. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about the first big buck that you shot. When was that, and how did that happen? So I had a a, a long road to kill a what would be like a, a bigger buck. Um, it was from a lack of trying. I hit and lost a few. It was always just wrong place, wrong time. Um, it took me 19 years to kill a 120-inch whitetail. And, you know, in my early days of hunting, we hunted for numbers and meat. You know, there wasn't a lot of monster bucks running around. You know, New Jersey's not exactly doing for monster bucks 30 years ago. Uh, it's gotten better, you know, more and more bigger bucks. But it was a long road to kill a 120-inch deer. It was a, a lot of hours reading reading books, um, you know, forums, archery talk, you know, the, the early days of a hunting beast. I always was a, was a bed, always on a bedding and not food. Yeah, I don't know why. I, I think Roger Raglan, old school, invading big buck bedding areas video. Uh, I probably watched that thing a thousand times. So I was always obsessed with bedding. And I always hunted it wrong, but right, uh, more wrong than right. <laughs> and then once I heard about Dan, you know, and the, like said Andre and all those guys, uh, I found those places, things kind of clicked. And I was like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm right. I just need to tweak it a little bit, you know, and then I was like off to the races after that, if you will. Sure. It wasn't easy, man. <laughs> it was not easy. I can relate coming from Michigan, uh, lands of, of the hundred inch deer and you know, they're occasionally, yeah. Getting- you get bigger ones in southern Michigan's got good deer hunting. It's just hard to get access yeah. down there. So I can relate to that for sure. I think a lot of people, uh, like my age, I guess, have been hunting a long time. Like some people get lucky shooting with a gun, you know, and or with a bow. Um, I said I was never lucky. Like every deer that I, that I killed was, it required a, an amount of work. Like my first buck I ever killed, you know, first deer I ever killed was a buck. I killed him on my birthday. And me and my buddy, we scouted, rode our bikes down, you know, to this piece. And we scouted it like 
every week all summer long. And, you know, that kind of was always a, a mobile hunter, if you will, climb a tree stand. I never really used fixed stands. Always took my gear in and out with me. So I've been, you know, the, what kids are calling it now, running gunning now for 30 years. Nice. After you shot that first big buck, I'm curious, was that the moment in time where you thought, I'm only targeting big bucks now? Or was there something else that led to that shift? Because, I mean, these days you're after pretty much specifically mature bucks, correct? Yeah. I I killed a lot of, like, year and a half, two and a half, like, 85, 90-inch, you know, like, around that 85, 90-inch mark. Like, I've killed so many of them. They were, I mean, not exactly easy, but... I have a hard time not shooting a buck on a single. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I got the last, you know, the deer I killed, I was like, I'm not shooting a, a small basket eight, you know, even though they're mature, like the last smaller basket eight I killed from before I totally targeted the, the bigger box was, you know, he's probably know, 70 inches maybe. And so he was two and a half, big body, but I was like, I, I need something bigger. And I think I went, three years without killing another buck strictly like letting deer walk like looking back now i let deer walk i shouldn't have let walk but i was looking for that buck that's like this is it you know this is the buck that everybody sees you know maybe it was like an eagle like i wanted to drive down the street in the back of the truck and everybody go oh my god that deer's so big right you know now i don't really care about that but the first one i wanted it you know and i wanted it bad and i got it and i shot it at early season that night and it I shot it, drove right to the butcher. And I was like, it was at 10 o'clock at night. And I'm like, I didn't get to drive around with him the back of my truck. <laughs> Show people. All this for nothing. Yeah, basically. But yeah, so I I, I transitioned. Um, I don't know if that's the right word to use these days. Uh, <laughs> I went from shooting smaller bucks to specifically targeting, you know, like 120 inch deers, stuff like that. Sure. And I'd like to know too, for you specifically, because I've talked to a lot of people, uh, not necessarily on the podcast, a few now, but a lot of people outside of the podcast. And it seems like a lot of people have different reasons or motivations for targeting big bucks. But what about targeting big bucks appeals to you specifically? Um, first, like it was, it was an interesting, uh, the first one, like I want to shoot the biggest, you know, cause I, I hung around people and, you know, they'd always have like, you know, like 140 deer, 150 deer. It's like, man, and you get obsessed with the inches. And I killed, you know, that one in the following year. I killed a big seven uh, in November. Yeah, a big seven in November. And they're both about the same, 117, 123, some around that 120 mark. Right, real solid deer. Yeah, and it's, the inches kind of just disappeared. It was like, these are mature deer. And like New Jersey, if anybody knows, like I think we can kill five or six bucks. Oh wow! Each I, year, I did not yeah, know so, that. Yeah, so yeah, it's a straight massacre on bucks, and with all the buy all their tags between gun and bow, I think you kill five five bucks. So the interesting thing was like, well, I might not be able to shoot 150, 150 inch deer because there's not a 150 inch deer, but there will always be mature deer. So it went from like an interesting to. I want to target bigger body bucks, you know, which is usually going to give you that age class that, you know, I, I always age over inches. You know, I, I don't live in Iowa where it's like, you know, I, I live in a, a very populated state. So 
there's always one old deer. He he might be have shitty genetics, you know, uh, terrible genetics antler wise, but he could have fantastic body genetics, you know. So it's like, all right, I can target them because there's always one big body deer to woodlot, you know. Yep. He might not be 140, but he's old. So for me, it transitioned, you know, went from inches to age. I try to say anyway, you know, because a couple of years ago I was chasing a deer in salt marsh. I seen him a few times. He was a big five pointer. I mean, a monster. He dwarfed body size, like rack mass, stuff like that. He dwarfed like 140 inch template. Like body, like just stature. And he had to do. And I'm like, that is to me. I was like, I would, I would shoot that five pointer. You know, I would never even think about shooting that 10 pointer. Right. You know, the 10 pointer would get me likes on social media, but that big old five pointer, He's on a decline. Like that day was probably seven, eight, yeah, maybe even nine years old at that point. You know, and it was like that's doable. You know, agree. Yeah, I don't know if you saw the deer that I shot in Kansas uh, this past season, but mm-hmm. it sounds real similar to your five pointer, big ugly old thing. Yep, I posted something the other day. My, my buddy he shot it was a six pointer, but it grossed two hundred one pounds, and he brought it over and everything. And like I seen the pictures, I'm like, man, this deer's big. And then looking at it, I'm like, holy crap! Right. I would shoot that over a 120 inch clean eight all day, every day. Yep. Big, heavy six old. I'm like that to me. I was like, you, you, you can't trump age plain and simple. Yeah. Those you know? are, those are cool trophies too. Yeah. Big old body swamp bucks, you know, or, you know, mountain bucks, whatever it might be like that to me is what drives me the the older deer. And, you know, and I specifically target heavily pressured areas on purpose. I don't know why I, I just want to shoot or have a chance to shoot a deer that so many people have tried and they couldn't, they can't, or they won't be able to. So I, I really set things. <laughs> I really put, uh, put myself behind the eight ball, so to speak. You know, I, I want to do the impossible. I was going to say, sounds like you're definitely in it for the personal challenge. Yeah. They, they, at first it was all for your know, recognition, so to speak. Now it's like, it's just for me. I think that's a, a fairly similar trajectory for a lot of hunters, for sure. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think this comes with time and age. If I would have shot bigger deer when I first started hunting, or had access to land where I shot, you know, inches like you would, you know, if my dad was a you know an inch hunter, big buck killer, you know, I probably would have hit that point sooner in my you know career. I, I think we all uh, get to that point. You know, there, there's a tipping point where you want to challenge yourself uh, like more internally than, than, you know, externally, I guess, if you will. No, I agree. hundred percent, hundred percent. So one thing that I haven't been doing, Greg, and I want to do now with some of my guests, and, and this is again, for people that don't know you and listen to the whole question here, it's going to be a, a bit, <laughs> why should anybody listen to Greg Litzinger and Greg, from what I know of you, you seem like a pretty humble guy, but I'm asking here. So feel free to answer because a lot of people don't want to put it out there, but you're in your mid forties now. How many mature deer have you shot now? Eight, nine. I have nine on the wall, yours and everything. And I've, I have a few that never got mounted. They're just sitting out in my garage. So I figure uh, 10, 10 mature bucks, uh, all with the bow, all in, heavily pressured public land you're right so and that's uh that's kind of what i wanted to bring up like i said most people won't bring that up on their own but 
you've got a, a real good resume and probably or arguably the toughest conditions in the country. And uh, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff today. And that's coming from a place of your extensive experience. So I wanted to disqualify the rest of the discussion with that. Yeah. And I, I, I think a lot of people gravitate towards what I say because I don't try to sugarcoat it, you know, and I think a lot of people out there try to maybe be something that they're not in a way. In the age of the internet, that's hard to believe. Yeah. Right. Crazy. (laughs) Yeah. So Greg, I want to shift gears here. You've been on the social media sites uh, as of late for something other than shooting big bucks. And that something else is tree stand safety. So this is yeah. the, this is the time of year where a lot of guys are heading out and they're starting to hang stands, climbing sticks. They're climbing up uh, two or three sticks to put a camera up high. Why don't you give a breakdown of your tree stand safety story? And let's start out by talking about what happened. Uh, had to be going on 10 years now. I was getting ready for season, basically. In the exact tree, I killed my first big bucket, believe it or not. <laughs> and... There was a big 12, I think, 11 or 12 in the area. So we have we had a hurricane coming in. I forget the, what hurricane it was, but hurricane was coming up the coast. So I spent that day just going in the woods and blowing out spots, getting super aggressive, you know, making scouting, setting a few stands, et cetera, et cetera. And that tree I climbed up. And this was, I never really used a, a, like a lineman's belt. I bought one that off season. I was using it. I got comfortable using it. I'm like, man, this makes hanging stand and all that other stuff easier. So I was doing it and then kind of got everything, got the stand, stand set like this one needs to be, all this stuff. And then coming down, I guess I thought I had the belt attached to the tree and I did not. And I fell woke up and I was not able to move face down along the uh, marshy area with the hurricane barreling up the coast. It was not a, a fun place to be, but I made a mistake of just not paying attention to my surroundings and not having enough practice in the backyard before I went out in the woods and did all that stuff. So uh, I almost paid the ultimate price. But we all have done it. We climb up tree. If something happens, I'm just going to grab a branch. I'm going to do this. It's not happening. I'm going to tell you that right now. If, if I slip, I'm going to grab that branch. Yeah, maybe 1% of the population, they could probably do that. You're falling like a rock. And you fall fast and hard. And Mother Nature shows no mercy. Like Captain Insano shows no mercy. So climbing in and out of stands uh, is... You just take things for granted, I guess. But that accident kind of opened my eyes up to a lot of things. And I would always line up, you know, to and from. And then it took me a long time to be completely comfortable climbing up a tree uh, after that couple of years. Oh, I can't imagine. How far was your fall, r- roughly? Figures. I think that stands like 17 feet. I was just stepping off the platform. So, you know, 15, 17 foot around that mark. And then talk about your injuries you sustained a little bit and, and your recovery, like what you went through and, and how long it took you to recover. Yeah, I shattered uh, back to the, the fall. Like when I woke up, you know, I, I came to, I knocked myself out, um, had a big gash in the back of my head. 
uh, you know, concussion and stuff. But I couldn't move, so I laid there. And then I guess as the, the neurosurgeon and, and people I've talked to, yeah, a, a, tra- a traumatic experience like that, like your body shuts down to save vital organs. So I guess my body just shut down to, to save my heart, to, to keep my heart beating, I guess. So I don't know if I was out for how long, but uh, had a long time to think. <laughs> it could have been only five seconds, but it felt like an eternity, you know, not being able to move. But uh, I got feelings in my in my arms, so I dragged myself in my bag and made a call and, you know, went to the hospital and spent a week in the hospital. Uh, two, four screws, four or five screws, I think, in my tibial plateau. Grenaded MCLs, basically, you know, long, stretchy, PCL stretched out, ACL, my left leg. It's just, like, super loose. But I spent time in a wheelchair, hospital bed, went to a wheelchair, went to crutches, and, you know, slowly but surely, tried to regain some of my function and it took it took a while uh to be somewhat normal i had so much swelling like six months i could said i had to go back to work way sooner than i i probably should have but i almost lost my house doing all this stuff because i'm not making any money so i went back to work and it was just awful my knee was a swell up which but swelled up my you know, ankle and just it was just awful Sounds absolutely brutal. Yeah, the, the first year was, was really rough, but you know, I did kill two bucks that, that fall, and I, I hunted a total of maybe three hours. That's pretty good results. Yeah, it was an upside to it. And the the other upside was like, I'm hurt. I can't drag out the deer, so my friends had to gut the deer and drag it out for me. So <laughs> that, that was always nice. <laughs> yeah. So... No problem killing deer, just a little bit of a hard time dragging them and working. Got it. Yeah, it's now back then. Like I used to climb, I had a hang on, but I would most of my hunting was done with the, the lone wolf climber. So the the morning I, I killed a big seven, I had to use the climber, and I could feel because I wasn't totally healed. It was only a few months out. Like I shouldn't have been out in the woods, but I don't listen to doctors. What do they know? Sure. So trying to use a climber and I could feel my, my knees just like separating a little bit, like from the weight of the stand, just like boom, like just like a slinky. Ooh. Yeah. It was, it was tough to get up the tree. I mean, it, it probably took me like 45 minutes to go, you know, 15, 17 feet. Like it was exhausting. <laughs> so exhausting. Yeah. And climbing down out of the stand was even worse. Cause it was like, I, my legs was all swat up and I didn't want to hurt it. So I was trying to like, anybody who's a climber, try to climb down like one foot. It's, it's like almost impossible. <laughs> Sounds pretty difficult, but yeah, it's like I said, preseason. I wanted to bring that up. Uh, I'm real big on safety and, and every year guys get hurt. I know people that have personally, you know, broke their back, paralyzed. I know one guy that fell out of a stand, broke his leg so bad and got infected in the swamp. He had to be amputated at the knee. So public service announcement, everyone be safe. And yeah, it's crazy. On that note, uh, Tim, Buno, the hardest working electrician in Billings, Montana, just got out of work and showed up. So Tim's in the studio now. How's it going, Tim? I'm not safe. <laughs> yeah. Are you <laughs> strapped up, Tim? I am strapped. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's up, Greg? What's up, man? Uh, not much. So how's Montana like treating you? Good. Uh, man, you couldn't believe the wildfires. The smoke, like we normally have like what? 
a hundred mile uh, visibility. The other day, we could barely even see across Billings. Well, dude, we got that smoke from you guys. I, I think last week here, like you could smell it. It was hazy for like two days. It's like it came literally across the country. So Tim's here. Getting back on track here, the uh, opening of archery seasons across the country, it's fast approaching, and I see you on social media, and you're spending a lot of time in the woods, even during the heat of the summer, and it's been a real hot summer, at least out here. So what are you looking for specifically in July, August, and September, and how's that lead into your season? Um, I did a little video uh, put on YouTube last week about that. I've, the last couple of years, you know, I've been spending more time in the summer uh, glassing from the rose more, but actually being in the woods because I don't have time to spend, you know, 10 hours, 12 hours every weekend in the woods now. So I get short little winter scouting, three or four hour clips, and I don't feel like I get enough time in the woods to feel 100% confident. So I started doing the summertime thing, and I've been finding, because uh, most of the bucks are, are not in the swamp. Uh, not where they're going to be bedding in the fall. So I can pretty much scout like I would in the wintertime, get super aggressive, get in their beds, and not worry about blowing them out. So I'm specifically looking for beds and you know, stand locations. Uh, when I scout in the winter, I'll note some trees. Like, oh, I'll probably be a good summer tree or like fall tree with the foliage that, that might leaf up here. So I'll mark trees, and I'll go back and look. And be like, all right, well, that tree's going to be – great for November, a little bit of leaves, a little bit of back cover, horrible for October, you know, because there's just too much uh, foliage. So it's a lot of just checking on trees, running cameras, like you bit the bullet and spend a lot of time running cameras here these last three years. Perfect lead into my next question, which is how are you leveraging your cameras right now? And what is your trail camera strategy or strategies in the summer? And do they change as the season goes on? Are you doing anything different in you know june july august then you're going to be doing in october and november and i have no problem finding bucks in the fall on trail cameras but as far as like summer camp uh summertime trail camera starts it's like i am the worst at finding bucks in the summertime the worst like i have one picture a couple pictures of this big monster in, in middle of may you know he was a hammer so i put out nine cameras looking for that deer that group of deer nine cameras Two were stolen, but so the other seven. So I'm assuming the two that had the bucks probably on, on camera uh, were stolen. The other seven didn't have squat. When I say squat, I mean like no bucks, like not even like a dink, a few does, a lot of raccoons for some reason. I don't know. Like raccoons like the open uh, woods. And it's like, wow, this is great. So my trail camera strategies for summer are just buckshot. I'm going to put out as many cameras as I got and hopefully I get lucky. And in the fall, like, cause I know what deer where buck's going to be in the fall. I have a lot more uh, success come like October. So what areas are you focusing in the summertime? Yeah. In the summertime. What, I mean, so you said like a buckshot, are they placed in particular, like maybe uh, your travel corridor more, or you're looking at more like your food source? Yeah, like browse, like the count. Well, I'm, I'm hunting pretty much uh, all big woods this year, relatively flat, uh, no ag. So I'm trying to focus on browse, cut 
tracks, you know, there's like fire roads and cart roads and, you know, a couple hiking trails. So just try to cut tracks and then find out what they're nipping and browsing and put cameras, you know, and because they're still kind of roamers. I don't really put out minerals. I mean, I, I'll try, but I don't have success. So now I get those, whatnot, uh, smaller bucks, you doing that stuff. So I got a couple of scrapes. I put cameras on that I just, I hit up a couple of weeks ago. I'm hoping they have something on them. The sign wasn't that great, but there was some browse. So I'm hoping maybe something pops up on those things. Hey, Greg, just curious. Have you ever read the Penn State University deer blog by chance? Uh, I've done, I've read some of it. Yeah. So I had the guy that was the lead on that Dwayne Diefenbach. He was on the podcast, one of my earlier episodes. And some of the interesting data was like in the summer, the core areas of bucks. And I assume knowing what I know about deer that it's probably a bachelor group. So I like to think about it. Like in terms of this, if I've got a one by one square mile that might have three or four bucks in it, the core area of the bucks in the summer is a real small area. like sometimes as small as a hundred acres. So a hundred acres within 600 acres, that's a pretty small percentage. And it seems like this has been my experience running trail cameras in Michigan too. It's, it's hit or miss. And it's almost always miss until you get in that area where that group's spending the majority of their time. Yeah. And I think when I got those bucks on camera, cause it was said early middle of May, the first time I got them. And I got end of May was like the last, and it was um, near where they. I found some really good bedding, um, like singular buck bedding, like a few different little spots. There's a little bit of high ground, and there was some water in that area. Like since it dried up, I think they just went to where the water where the water wasn't stagnant because the the creek that flows through there in that area, if there's not like a a, a good amount of rainfall every couple of weeks all the little water there gets stagnant. So I'm thinking they just went somewhere where there's fresh running water or the, that a seepage somewhere that I don't know where it's at. At least that's, that's what I tell myself. Anyway, that's sleep <laughs> at night without crying myself. Sleep. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So one more thing while we're on the subject of trail cameras, uh, also going back to social media, I see you're working with Spartan Forge. Now I don't know hardly yeah. anything about it. So could you explain to me and the listeners what Spartan Forge is, how it works, and what your connection to that is. Bill, if you listen to this, I hope I don't butcher <laughs> it up too bad. Uh, <laughs> uh, Spartan Forge is uh, Bill's in the in the military. Real quick, who's Bill? Uh, the one of the, the owner, the designer. Okay. Uh, Bill Thompson, I think. If I hopefully I said that right. <laughs> if not, sorry, Bill. You can yell at me later. But uh, he's in the military, and I guess. He was the military uses AI software to find bad guys. So he had, you know, I'm going to make something for deer hunter. So he's got all the radio track, uh, collars from a couple of universities and he just built a program and it focuses on, you know, travel corridors, um, weather, what the wind's doing in this specific spot on a historically. So, there's a lot of a lot of inputs, and I was approached last year to see if I wanted to try it, and I did, and I was like, "Wow, this shit works," because <laughs> you know, you don't really know. You're like, eh, wow, yeah, "Dear, dear," but what are you, you know? It can't be anything. But I'm like, "Sure, I'll, I'll give it a whirl," and I was actually surprised when, because it'll tell you what kind of day uh, you're going to have 
what the upcoming days, what the weather, when, like what's a good day to hunt, like where to hunt, what area to focus on. And I was seeing a lot more deer using that software, focusing on the areas of kind of where it was telling you to focus on. And that was just the, the beginning version. Like he's really ramped it up here this past year and a half or so. So the new stuff that's going to be coming out here shortly is going to be, you know, leaps and bounds what I was using last year. So it's AI software for deer movement. Now, is this just on like a broad scale deer across the country or does it somehow integrate like your pictures at specific GPS locations that your cameras are at? Or is it more of like a broad based system? I guess it'd be broad based, but I mean, I, I could be wrong, but I know like he's got, I think, like Michigan, uh, I think he's got Northern Southern, like a, a bunch of, uh, like a, a bunch of universities data from across different ranges. So it kind of, um, you know, filtered all that into one. So you, in the South, it's going to work, you know, in the North. Cause you put your, like your, your zip code in okay. where you want to hunt or where you're hunting. And then it gives you data for that area. Kind of like a regional thing. Yeah. And it's, it's, pretty crazy because we i don't realize how, how much we rely on ai as a, as a society now like ai it's it's I, I, you know, I hate the word game changer but if you're a good hunter uh this is going to help you probably be even uh, a better hunter if that makes sense and it tells you like said what when the peak rut is in certain areas because here if i drive to delaware the peak rut's different than where i hunt here it's a week different so i can hit peak rut in delaware and then come back here and hit peak rut in Jersey. So it, it, there's a lot of li- little things like that that's in there. It's pretty pretty cool. That was kind of going to be my question because I think the three of us we've we traveled in um, you know different states. And we've hunted different states, and you can always tell there's a difference, you know, in, in timing of you know especially the rut. Yeah, and it's pretty neat. I was pleasantly surprised. Um, I think the. The one morning I had a bunch of activity in Pennsylvania, I lost that big buck. It was like a great day to be in the woods, like great day. And it was an amazing day in the woods. You know, it was like, wow, I'm seeing a lot of bucks. I was like, oh my God, you know, it's a big buck right behind me. <laughs> well, I don't know. I appreciate the information on that. Like I said, I've seen it on social media. I haven't looked into it deeply. So I didn't know if that was something that was taking data from your personal spartan cams and then like you plugged in the no it's going to be he's going to have like an, an app coming out and it's software based but there's going to be mapping software that goes along with it now instead of using onyx or base map or hunt stand whatever you can actually just use spark forge it's going to have its own maps and everything with it and there's a lot of other things in the pipeline that, that go along with it as well cool yeah another tool to have that's going to help you be successful you know if you're an idiot, I don't think, you know, if you're an idiot, you're an idiot. Nothing's help <laughs> it actually came up on the hunting beast and, uh, I said, and I'm not picking on Spartan forge cause I don't know anything. Yeah. I said, Spartan forge is going to help Spartan forge first and foremost. Second, it's going to help the same population of guys that are already intelligent, hardworking and squared away. And then it's going to hurt the people that trail cameras normally hurt who over rely on it as a crutch and yeah. aren't good woodsmen. Yeah. Yeah, and it's weird because I said the the new version I haven't been privy to uh, mess with it yet, but there's some guys out there, and it's it blows away what I was using before. So I'm I'm kind of excited to see it, test it, the new stuff out. 
That's not good news for the deer. You don't need any help. Yeah, sure I do. I hunt a lot of states. I hunt <laughs> three states, and I should kill three bucks. <laughs> <laughs> and I can kill five bucks in Jersey, so I need all the help I can get. Well, Greg, uh, I want to shift gears here. Tim tells me that you do some whitetail backcountry camping trips in the mountains. So I'd like to know, first of all, how'd you get started with that? I always camped. You know, as a kid, like my dad, we tent stuff. And then my early 20s, like living on my own, I just did a lot of camping, fishing, uh, camp along Delaware River, go smallmouth fishing. And I would hunt along the Delaware River up in Jersey, but I would camp along the river in the, and then drive up the street and then have like a two-hour hike in. After a couple of years of doing that, I'm like, there's got to be a better way. Like, I'm exerting so much energy and time hiking. I was like, I'm just going to stay on the Appalachian Trail. So I just started, you know, diving into it. And the first time I did it, I mean, I had like a frame pack. I, had, I actually had a climbing tree stand in there. Like, I'm, I had my lone wolf climber on a frame pack. It was not fitted to me. I, it was like 80 pounds, just unnecessary garbage. And I stayed overnight uh, the first time, just a single overnight. And it was awful. <laughs> it was so awful. <laughs> you know, it's just crappy gear. I wasn't really like, it's like camping, base camp next to your truck is one thing. Like when you go out there, like you got nothing. Right. So I was like, I'm not, what, what's the water filter? I don't know. I'll just bring water. So I like carried like all this water around. I didn't have a water filter. So the first couple of times was a, a learning experience for sure. And then I kind of decided, I was like, I need to streamline this. So got lighter gear. You know, I did, I did a tarp and a bivy sack, which is pretty cool. And once I got the saddle, I started hunting out of saddle. It became a lot easier because I can fit everything just into a frame pack, real compact. And then when I got out to Montana the first year, it got really streamlined because you've got to downsize even more. And I kind of found my niche like that year before I went out to Montana, like what I needed and didn't need, you know, like for me, I don't, you know, I'll do like two or three days in the mountains of Jersey and it's enough to fit in. I don't know. I can like 40, I think the pack is like 4,500. I can do three days with a 4,500 pack. So pretty streamlined, pretty efficient. So you answered some of my questions already, which is, are you using a saddle now? Yes, you are. And it sounds like you're using a tarp and a bivy sack. What else are you taking in and uh, why? Like, What's real important to you now? For, for me, uh, I mean, Tim knows, like, last year, elk, uh, hunting elk, like, I don't bring a stove. All I have all cold meals. I go stoveless. So I don't want to boil anything. I don't want to buy any meals, I guess. So... The only meal I do buy is like green belly meals and, and like a lot of like uh, almond butters. You know, I run about 3,200 to 4,000 calories I bring, but on average, I bring home food every time I go. Every time. Yeah. It's like, I'm going to bring all this food and I'm going to eat it. No, you're not. It's like, I'm just carrying all this weight. And it's like, I'm just not a big eater, I guess. I don't know. Like, because maybe because like with whitetails, you just sit, you don't really, I don't need to eat a lot of food. I'm not consuming calories. And like elk hunting, there's a lot of sitting. So it's like kind of like snacks. So I, I prefer snacks, green belly meal, green belly bars and pro bars. It's kind of my thing. I do have to say I was pretty jealous uh, sitting there waiting for my water to boil, looking over and seeing you uh, already diving into your dinner at night. Yeah, that's the best part, man. That was like <laughs> the best part. It's like I get time to boil. I was like, 
well, you know, anybody that hunts backcountry, sometimes they're so exhausted. And a lot of times, like the, the green belly meals, I, they come in like two bars and a, and a, and a thing. I'll, I'll break half and I'll eat half while I'm walking. So I'm already like filling up food before I even get back to camp. I get back to camp, eat the other bar, go drink a quart of water, and I'm in bed. Yeah. And meanwhile, I'm worried about Rick eating me because he looks hungry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I got a, a teepee, the deluxe gear, a teepee tent that I took to Montana last time mainly because of the screen, the bugs. So the bivy in the summertime and in October and the fall, it's awful because of spiders. I'm not a big fan of spiders. So I'll use the bivy if it's cold and the bugs are dead. <laughs> Otherwise you want the teepee with the screen, huh? Yeah. And I know like the first time I went out with the Montana with the, the bivy and the tarp, ants, man. Montana has a lot of ants. Oh yeah, like they're everywhere. It's like they're crawling on me, and I'm like, and it's so hot because it's like, it's like I was getting lit up by ants. I'm like, there's got to be a better way, man. So I, I think I the bivy and the tarp, cold season for sure. Hey, real quick, going back to you said your first time, uh, your camping and stuff with your father. It was uh, what 2015. Um, you killed that buck with your dad. Was that a camping trip? Just curious. Uh, we stayed at a cabin. And had about, you know, a mile drive to the trailhead. And, yeah, about a mile drive. And then I had, I don't know, an hour hike in, 45 minutes in, I think it was. The trailhead was, like, midway up to, like, Jersey where we were. It's, like, either at the top or at the bottom. And a few trailheads kind of, like, you know, the lower one-third, and that's where the trailhead was. So it shaved, you know, a couple hundred feet of elevation and the Appalachian Trail there, it's straight up. Like some of the trails are like, you know, it's good training for out west because they go straight up, switchbacks. Like it's a leg burner <laughs> for sure. While we're on the mountain subject, Greg, I know you hunt mountains and big woods in your, you know, Jersey and PA, and you also hunt the coastal salt marshes of New Jersey. But I'd like to know so hunting those two pretty much totally different types of terrain. What's been your biggest takeaway of like similarities or deer movement or how has one type of terrain helped you learn the other or vice versa? Uh, I think cause I always grew up hunting like cattails and swamps. That's what's around here. I was a good hunter. And, but I think hunting the mountains, you know, pre having access to like maps on your phone, like even pre GPS, like a compass and a, and a you know, paper topo map. And the mountains forced me to be more precise because if you're 20 yards off you're where you want to be, you're not going to see deer in the laurels. So me hunting the mountains, uh, like getting in the mountain hunting, made me really like dial in my, my tree selection. Like it wouldn't be like, ah, this tree will work. When I hunted the mountains, like postseason scouting, this is the tree. Not over there, like this is the tree. You know, and I you know, put a, a tack or something or stack a bunch of rocks in the bottom of the tree, you know, and, and then hopefully you find it. <laughs> And then uh, a crappy GPS would get me close to a tree. And then I, I, like I said, I would know the tree, you know, and back then I would take a camera and I would take pictures of the tree, what it looked like at the base and going up, I'd be like, all right, I'm going to hunt this, this beech tree here. It looks like this, you know, or there's this rock there. So it, it gave me like some information to, to find it in the dark, but yeah, mountain hunting made me definitely dial in my scouting and the precision, I guess the precision, precision part of stand placement so i remember talking to you basically when we kind of first started uh talking to each other there 
I had, you know, approached you with some questions and I remember you um, saying that like you preferred morning hunts. And I believe uh, somewhere along those lines, I you know, read something where it's like, you know, 90% of your bucks have been taken on your morning hunts. First of all, are, are you are hunting mornings and evenings equally or, uh, you know, hunting a lot more, you know, mornings? And then uh, what kind of setups are you doing for the majority of those morning hunts? Mornings, um, hunting beds, um, or right side, of, right outside of bedding areas, directly over the bed, so I can shoot in the bed. I don't like being, you know, 60, 70 yards from a bed unless, like, the only, you know, spot I have. I, I'm a lot different than most guys but as far as my uh, being aggressive because we all know Dan, follow Dan and, and, and hunting beast, and when he hunts in the evening in the marsh, you go in there, you blow that trail out, you blow the area out. Well, I took that same mentality because I wasn't having success in, in, in the evening. So I was like, well, I'm going to have success in the morning. And I took that aggressive perch and took it to the morning set. And I made some mistakes. Uh, and then I kind of dialed in something that works for me, being able to, to shoot. Like I'm a pretty decent shot with a bow. I can squeeze shots in and I can you know make shots happen. So sitting 30 yards off a of bed, that gives me like a 60, 70 yard, maybe even 80 yard diameter. I guess that would be a circle to, to shoot a buck at. So evening hunts, I, I just don't have much success. I, I never have. I just don't know why. I don't know why my, my brain's wired from morning. I'm a better, I make better decisions in the dark. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> are you still hunting an equal amount of evenings though? Or are you doing like 10 morning hunts, 10 evening hunts? Or are you doing these days more like 15 and five? If I'm going to take like time off of work, um, I'll do, I'll sit both days. Um, but like after work or like early season or late season, it's the evening hunt. I just, I'll see big bucks in the evening, but seeing and killing, it, it's not the same. Like I'll see good deer. I'll see them get up off of, out of their bed or I'll see them like come out and, and then it's, it gets dark. And it's like, well, this sucks. Now I got to sit here. So they feed out and get out. You know, <laughs> so it's like in the morning, in my mindset, it's like, I can always beat the deer there. You know, if, I, I, if I'm setting up at four and I'm getting winded, I'll start setting up at three. I don't care. I'll do whatever it takes to shoot a, you know, a buck. In the evening, they don't need to move out of their bed. They can, and we've all seen it. You just run out of daylight. To me, that's just so heartbreaking because I don't have a lot of success with seeing a deer multiple times in a season. Usually it's a one and done for me. So if I see a buck, if I don't kill it, probably never seen that deer ever again. You know, and I've had too many evening hunts where it's like, oh, there he is. And I'll hunt that area and that deer and I'll never catch, I'll never see a glimpse of him. Quick story here, Greg. So in 2015, it must have been, or 2016, either way, the year doesn't matter. I was on to what would have been my biggest Michigan buck at the time. And uh, my girlfriend's dad actually shot it the second day of October, wounded it. We never found it. I was setting cameras on some public land by their place about a mile and a half away and I actually jumped this deer and he was bedded on a knoll. So that next weekend I went back there at like literally, like you said, four in the morning and went, went to set my tree stand up and he was already there. So, so I went back one more time even earlier and he was there again. So this ties into my question is I've read about you having the success in the mountains in the morning. How are you determining your access for a morning hunt? Are you worried about bumping the target deer or satellite deer or what are you doing to set up your access and to not spook other deer or not ruin the hunt before it gets started? You know, if I have hiking trails, like I, like I love hiking trails, you know, cart roads, 
and I will use them as, as long as I possibly can because deer are used to noise and sound there. So I'm, I'm not too concerned with making noise uh, on those things. But then when I get within, you know, say 100 yards of, of the tree, uh, I usually will, if I can use the, the, the access trail, I will get to where I'm just like perpendicular or straight to the tree, and then I'll literally just walk straight to that tree. And I do blow deer out from time to time. You know, I think we all we all have, but I do pretty well. I think in my scouting setup, like looking at where deer could be or feed. I don't bump a lot of deer out because I avoid feeding areas uh, as much as possible. Like if I got to walk a mile uh, around a swamp or so because a deer out in the bean field, I got no problem doing that. Like a lot of guys won't, but for me, it's just like another day. Like I'm gonna get up and get up at two. I get up at three. What's the difference? So. Um, I try and avoid like, and this leads into like, I'm not a big food guy, food plots, uh, or like even ag. I just avoid them areas, um, outside of like the first week of the season. I just, I find out where they're bedding, where they're browsing. And that's kind of where I like to be. I think that they're, the guards down a little bit. They make a little more mistakes closer to home, so to speak. Like we all hunted ag fields before deer on like high alert, man. Like every little noise, they're like dropping down. It's like I think that's just that's too nerve wracking for me. And even acorns, you know, the does. It says here in Jersey, like baiting's legal. So whenever there's food, these deer are just on edge, man. Button bucks all the way up to bigger bucks. So I just stay away from this place. That's interesting about the the morning and evening things that you know you prefer. It just it seems like it just clicks to you. I think that that says a lot for a lot of people. I know um, Jeremy and I just kind of had a conversation the other day, you know, with glassing, he can go out in the evening time. He can find these deer. I go out in the evening time. I can't find shit. <laughs> you know, morning time though, you know, I go out in the morning and you know, that's when I see all mine. So I think that just, um, you know, a testament kind of a, you know, to you need to find out what really works for you. Yeah, exactly. A hundred percent. Like you're plenty of your strengths. Yep. I don't consider myself a, a, a good deer hunter or this phenomenal, whatever. Like, I just, I know what I'm good at. So I just kind of work with that. Like I, I try to shore up my, my weaknesses, so to speak, but I don't spend a lot of time on it. Like I'm good at certain things. Like I'm good at finding rubs. Like I don't really struggle for it. Like I'm, I, I just comes easy for me. So I roll with that, like rubs and bedding usually go hand, kind of hand in hand. So I just roll with that, you know, like, ta-da, like food. I've been trying to get better with the food browse and food but it's like eh it's like work effort not the best at it greg you're making my lead-ins real good here you just talked about shoring up your your weaknesses (laughs) and my next question was about continual improvement process improvement so i'd like to know what methods or strategies you're using to get better every season and obviously you've had a lot of success and you're still driven so what what drives you to keep improving and how are you doing that for me it's just like we were talking about earlier, you know, the, if I want to be challenged, like that's why I hunt where I do. Like I want to, like, I want to get worked over by an animal. Like I don't want it to come easy. You know, I, I, I have access to private. I don't ever hunt it. I don't really care to hunt it. It just doesn't do anything for me. So for me, the drive is to be, you know, when it's all said and done to do things that, you know, I, I can look back and be like, it's pretty cool. You know, like we all, we've all grew up around old timers that hunted and the stories they have, like, I want crazy stories like that. I want to be able to tell my kids that, you know, or strangers, you know, or whatever. So for me, it's just the constant improvement of myself and my skill set. And 
I think since my tree stand accident, it's, I appreciate every season, every time I'm in the woods, because in a moment's notice, all this could be taken away. We can't hunt forever. It's father time, injuries, you know, whatever might happen. So I just want to be the best I can possibly be uh, each season, you know, constantly learning and honing my craft. You know, and that's the great thing about social media and, and the internet, like the hunting beast and uh, you can, or even Archer talks or some good stories from time to time, like uh, YouTube and, and social media. There's so much, so many good people out there that, that motivate you. Like the stuff that they're doing, it's like, man, I could do that. You know, it, get, it gets me motivated seeing people do stuff. I'm like, I, I could do that. You know, I, I can kill a big deer. So speaking of success, you're someone who has, we've had a lot of uh, success on whitetails with a bow and you're pretty far along the learning curve. If you could tell a new hunter, say uh, someone who's in the first, you know, one to three years bow hunting, one thing that really increases their success, what would you tell them? Be patient. It's not going to come easy. And you can't, you can't jump the line, so to speak. Like you got to pay your dues. There's going to be ups and downs. So enjoy it, learn, read, consume content, be it TV or books. Uh, I don't know if books are even a thing anymore. Do, you, do they even make books anymore? Um, <laughs> it's all audio book now. Yeah, so like just consume content as much as you can for um, a lot of different things. Like read a lot of different authors, listen to a lot of different podcasts. And you, you'll see who you gravitate towards more and just try and imitate you know, what they're doing. Like I, I grew up on VHS, the Primos, Roger Raglan's. Who didn't love Roger Raglan growing up that listened to Jimmy Christmas and all the excitement? Like, that's real. Yeah. So it's like, find someone you can imitate or, or shadow, so to speak, you know, and, and try it. And if it don't work, that's okay. You know, try something else. If you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to keep getting what you're getting. So if you're not having success in one thing, like try something else, you know, you got nothing to lose. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that because I think so many people get stuck in that trap thinking, I'm just going to keep doing this and eventually a big buck's going to walk by. Very rarely does that happen. And if it does happen, it's probably by accident and not repeatable. Mm -hmm. So get out of the box. You're already not having those results. What's trying something different going to hurt? Don't be afraid to try something different. Precisely. And I think a lot of people want, we, we live in a very fast paced world. They want success now. Like I was saying, telling the story, like it took me 19 years to kill a big deer. That was like, you know, and your first big deer like for me, like that was sort of like the, the floodgates, if you will, because I had them with some guys and they were like, dude, your first one, you've been at it because once you kill that first bigger one, it's just going to, they're going to come more easier. He goes, and I'm like, you're insane. And it literally was, like, I killed that first one. Then it was like, because maybe it was a pressure thing. I was like beating myself up mentally, but it was like, now it's just, it flows a little easier. You know, I know what to expect. And we all have crappy seasons, make crappy shots. So you can't let a bad season, you know, or a bad shot, you know, drag you down and practice with your bow for new hunters, practice sitting down, standing one leg, one foot, whatever you need to do. Don't just practice in your flip flops and, and your shorts. But, uh, I mean, a, a quick story, the first big eight-pointer I killed, I killed that deer. Um, I did everything that you shouldn't do. I passed him up a few a week prior, and they were cutting all the beans down, and they were staying in this little, like, overgrown field right in a, in a pocket of, of beans. So the farmer was mowing everything down. They were cutting all the, the overgrown fields down. So I was driving home from work, 
I'm like, I'm, I got to go hunt. So I went and got my stuff. The wind was wrong. I literally went right across the beam, hunted the stand wrong. Everything was wrong. And I ended up killing that deer. So sometimes you got to do things that you wouldn't do to get what you want. Because if I would have hunted the, you know, oh, I, I can't hunt that stand. It's the wrong thing. Like I knew they were, that deer was going to be gone. So it was like now or never. So I did everything you shouldn't do. And I still killed a deer. Well, and I want to bring something up too, because especially early on, we're talking about right now, new guys, new hunters, and you mentioned that's wrong. I know some of the things that I thought early on that were wrong. I actually do those things now. So you don't want to get caught up in thinking, you know, too much early on either. Exactly. And, and keep your expectation for new hunters. Keep, keep them realistic, man. Unless you live in Iowa, Illinois, you know, or Kansas, somewhere where big bucks are the norm, like, your odds of saying shooting a 140 or even like Long Island, like there's a lot of big deer out there. A 140 inch deer, you know, is three, you know, three years old, probably on average, like it's pretty smart deer. Lower the bar, shoot something small, get some traction, you know? So when the bigger deer comes in, like you're not going to be buck fever. You're not going to be jittery. Shoot some does. Don't just wait for a buck because a wall full of a hundred inch deer is, uh, it's better than one, you know, 150 deer on your wall. That's what I think. Anyway. The time to learn to draw back on a deer is not when the booner's walking in. Exactly. Yeah. Trust me. I've, fl- I've, I've messed up all, <laughs> I messed up on a lot of big deer early, early part of my hunting career. <laughs> so I was like, wow, buck fever is a thing. Like it's really a thing. You shake and you can't breathe and it's awful. <laughs> I love it. Well, Greg, I want to move into, we talked about somebody that's brand new and again, you're far down the learning curve. So I want to talk about someone with slightly more experience. This is a hypothetical guy. Say he's killed a few bucks, maybe a couple two-year-olds, maybe even one mature deer, but he's not having consistent success. What would be the single most important thing? Or what did you do at that point in your hunting career when you were starting to kill some good deer, but you didn't quite have it figured out? What, what changed to get you much more consistent? I feel like this is directed to me. It's directed, it's directed, I'm not looking at you. But I feel attacked. I'm attacked here. This is an attack on my person. No, I, I feel like there's a ton of people that occupy this space, especially now that, that there's so much information out there. It's not that hard anymore to kill, let's say, your first buck or your first deer. I'm not saying it's easy. It's still hard in plenty of areas. But a lot of people do that, and then they get maybe one or two mature deer, and they're having a hard time getting consistent, getting to the next tier. So I'd like to hear from you, somebody that's done it, what worked for you. If, uh, let's just say somebody that's, you shot a couple hundred inch deer and they want to say target a deer that's 120 or 130. So it's a different age class. So you can't shoot 120, you know, going back to me, like if you shoot a hundred inch deer, like you have to let those little deer walk. And, and by letting them walk and like you basically want, like if you let a, a two year old deer walk by, say it's a hundred inch deer in Michigan, you let him walk, you let a three or four of those deer walk. You can learn a lot by watching those deer. It's like a video mode or a trail camera. Like you can learn a lot about deer behavior just by watching them. Like let those hunters deer walk, see how they walk, see how they move, you know, see why they move, see where they move. Because the bigger bucks will move very similar, just in a different way. Like they won't expose themselves a little bit, you know, they'll be in a little bit darker timber or, or, or thicker cover. So you can learn a lot by just watching nature in general, you know, how deer move. So when I took the jump, wanted to shoot bigger deer, like I didn't shoot those deer I could have shot. 
And that was a hard thing because it's like, if I shoot this, people think I'm cool mentality. And it's like, well, it's not getting me to where I need to go. And I'm basically a weekend warrior. So if I let a handful of deer walk, you know, and I don't shoot a deer, like, that's okay. You know, you can learn something from it, take something from it. And if you're still not seeing the bigger deer, then I suggest you change your tactics. Maybe you need to focus on understanding betting in the area. You know, if you hunt public, you know, and if you're hunting small tracks, maybe go try a bigger track where a bigger buck does come through. He might spend 50% of his time there than, say, a 200-acre piece where he's only there 10% of the time. Does that answer pretty good? No, a lot of good information for sure. Quick follow-up question. So you talked about hunting different areas. Let's say going back to when you shot your first uh, couple hundred-inch deer, or maybe even your first 120, did you start focusing on different areas? Are you finding these 120-plus deer in different areas, or were you just passing more deer and spending more time in, in areas that you kind of were already in? Well, here's a funny, uh, not funny, depressing when I think about it, but all the deer in my wall, I have never seen, and I, ne- I never used a trail camera for them. So it was a tracks, big tracks, big rubs at, at dead. So I didn't know what the deer actually looked like. I just knew it was a big track, and that rub's kind of big. So I could put one and one together and say it's a big deer that's coming through this area. And I did that, like I said, from be it the swamps or the salt marsh or a couple of the big wood sections I hunted, just big tracks, big rubs, usually going to equal bigger deer. <laughs> I think that brings up a good point, too, like coming back to woodsmanship there. Not using cameras, you have to rely on everything that the you – know, that you know, the animals leave you or, you know, whatever the environment has for you. So it forces you to, to learn a little bit more rather than become dependent on a picture. Yes. And a lot of people are afraid of that. This, this trail camera, like, unless you're, you have, if you're running a trail camera and that buck is on there, you know, and for, you got three months of data on this buck, he's there three, four days a week. You're in his primary bedding area. Uh, like I run a lot of cameras, I might only get two pictures of a buck all season. <laughs> so it's like, I know he's in the area, but where I got the camera is not where he's at. So you got to be able to use that camera as a, as a tool and not a crutch. All right. He's in the area. And then, you know, use your brain and be like, okay, he's walking this way. Let me, let me see if I could see a track where he might've been, you know, and, and kind of go old school, if you will. Yep. Exactly. The the old school mentality before everything, technology took a hold of everything. Cause you already started using cameras, what, like four years ago, maybe? I used to run cameras over scrapes, but I never hunted over them. Right. But it's ever since my daughter was born, because I don't have the ability just to, I'm going to the woods every day after work because I can. So I use cameras as a scouting tool, you know? I say that cameras should supplement your woodsmanship. They shouldn't replace it. 100%. And I, I think a lot of people struggle with that. I mean, we all know guys and see it on social media. Guys who's got hammer bucks all velvet long, giant hammers, and all season long, truck and pictures galore. They never kill anything. Maybe that's what their goal. Like, I, I, I run a truck camera and I get pictures of big deer. I was like, I'd rather kill big deer. You know, and... I don't really get a lot of pictures of, of whoppers. I've only got a handful of whoppers in my lifetime on camera. Guys that have whoppers all the time, I'm like, I wish. <laughs> It'd be exciting. Like, yeah, look at this 160. I got three of them. Yeah. I'm like, 
I might get one, two big deer and five months of trail camera use of running, you know, you know, half a dozen to a dozen cameras. I'm like, uh, that's just awful. Well, Hey Greg, I want to be respectful of your time. I know when we talked setting this up that you get up early and we're running up a little over an hour here. So I want to say, I definitely appreciate the time. I think we covered a lot yeah, of great, man. yeah, we covered a lot of great topics today and I definitely want to have you back in the future. I know you're a wealth of knowledge and obviously we can't cover everything in an hour. So let uh, the people that are interested in what they heard from you, let them know where they can find you online. What's your YouTube? What's your Instagram? Uh, team Instagram and YouTube. Cool stuff, some funny stuff. Like I said, nothing groundbreaking in my opinion, but just I put type about good solid intel uh, on my YouTube videos. So I made it quite a few this year. So watch them, enjoy them, make fun of me. I don't care, <laughs> but uh, I can take it. Uh, but yeah, that's that's where I'm at. Now, I think anybody that's seriously interested in learning, there's there's something you can pick up from almost anybody that's been successful. So I watch your content yeah. real real regularly, and I've I've enjoyed it and picked some stuff up. So if people aren't familiar with that, go ahead and check Greg out online. And Greg, thanks again, and we'll we'll have you back on yeah, soon, man. hopefully. All right, cool. See you guys. Later. Later. Later.